Scripture comes from James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Let's pray together. And Father, now as we come before you this morning, we ask that you would once again speak to us through your word. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us stranded to ourselves in this confused and chaotic world, but that you lead us by the guiding light of your scripture as it is inspired, as it is inerrant, by the preserving power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask now, Lord, that you would speak to us, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, and banish away whatever doubtful pretensions that we lift up in rebellion against you, but instead enable us to have a submissive heart that is inspired of your merciful love towards us through your son, Jesus. Father, we are so thankful for how you are faithful week in, week out, day in and day out, moment by moment, as our faithful God. Oh God, may the words that come out of my mouth this morning be fruitful in the lives of your people today, not because of me or what I possess, but surely by the power of your spirit that is at work within all of us. And Father, I do pray for those among us here who do not know you, those who are considering the claims of Christianity. God, we pray that you would illumine their hearts and minds and that though they may not have heard this gospel story before, I pray that in light of who they are as image bearers of God, that it would be eerily familiar in such a way that it it would resonate within them to where it would cause them to seek after you even more and to be fully encouraged and inspired by your spirit to find you through your son, Jesus. Oh, God, would you please bless this message in spite of its messenger, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, one thing you may not know about me is that I am really, really, really bad when it comes to geography. You ask my wife, Sarah, and she will confirm this. I am terrible when it comes to directions as we are driving somewhere. Whenever we're driving somewhere new, I always tell Sarah, do you punch in GPS? Where do I go? Even when she punches in the GPS, I say, what does GPS say? It's like, you can hear for yourself, right? No, 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 no. What does it say? Tell, like, I want to be three steps ahead. I get so paranoid whenever I'm driving somewhere that I've never driven to before or a place that I've never been to before because I have this fear that haunts me every time I'm behind the wheel going in a new place in a new direction. And that fear is I'm going to be driving somewhere for hours and hours only to find out that I'm in the complete wrong place that I have to be. Any of you guys in here ever struggle with that fear? You're like, no, Pastor John, none of us because we're not paranoid like you. Fair enough. Maybe I am a little bit paranoid, but you know what? If you knew what I went through in my life, you would know that my paranoid is justified. Case in point, sophomore year, college, UNC Chapel Hill, fall semester just ends. Christmas break has begun. I have been able to find a classmate of mine who happened to live in my same neighborhood, and I got a ride from this person. However, the person said, hey, if you want to ride from me, one condition. You have to drive halfway there. You have to drive half." hour and a half of our three-hour drive, and I said, you know what? No problem. I am eager to drive. I am eager to get home. I just aced all my finals, right? 
And I was ready to go home. I was ready to sleep in, watch tons of movies, pig out. I was ready to go home. So here we are on the road. First 45 minutes, we're on the road driving back home to Charlotte, North Carolina. At about 50 minutes into the drive, we decided to take a pit stop, bathroom break, cup of coffee, kind of stretch our legs. To which afterwards, we went back onto the highway. I'm behind the wheel. And I'm driving for another 40-some minutes. My friend is sleeping in the passenger seat. And then without warning, I saw it. Something I was not expecting to see. Welcome to UNC Chapel Hill. That's right. I went back to school. It was late at night. I was tired. But I actually drove in the opposite wrong direction, far from home. I went to the wrong direction. When my friend woke up, he was like dying with laughter. He, he was like, I thought he would be a- angry, but he was like dying with laughter. I myself was not happy. I was pretty angry because I felt I forever lost that hour and a half. That hour and a half that would have taken me over halfway home by now. Forever lost. Now, of course, looking back on it, I can laugh as well because in the big picture of it, losing an hour and a half did not do any permanent damage to my life, thank God, right? Did not do any permanent damage, which is why I look back with fondness and I think it's funny. But you know what would not be funny? What would not be funny is if instead of losing an hour and a half, I lost days, I lost months, I lost years before I realized I was going in the wrong direction direction. You know, it's an inconvenience when you're bad with direction when it comes to driving, but it's an utter tragedy when you're bad with direction when it comes to living life. And the sad reality is that so many people in this world today are really, really bad when it comes to the geography of life. And what I mean by that is, is that there are many people today living their entire lives, going in a certain direction with their life, thinking they're going in the right direction with it, When in fact, they're going in the place that they should not be going. The place that they should avoid at all costs. They don't even realize that they're going in the wrong direction with their life. In fact, quite the opposite. Many people today are going in the direction of life completely driven, living hard, living fast. Because they want to get to this destination of life that they think is right. Only to find out when it's too late that you can't turn back. That is the tragedy of so many people Today And given that this is the last week of 2015, which is usually the time when most of us tend to be more introspective, more self-reflective, and more forward-thinking in our planning with life, I wanted to make sure that none of us in here fall into that tragic mistake. So, with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. First, I want to talk about the direction the world tells you to go. Then I want to talk about the pathetic tragedy of those who follow the direction of the world. And finally, I want to end it with the direction that God tells you to go and how to get there. Okay? The direction the world tells you, excuse me, tells you to go. The pathetic tragedy of those who follow the direction of the world. And finally, the direction that God tells you to go and how to get there. First, the direction the world tells you to go. Let's read again verse 13 and 14 of our passage where James writes this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time 
and then vanishes. Okay, so here's what's going on. James is addressing a group of people who are going in the direction of the world that is completely off, a direction that the world is constantly telling us to go. Now, you might be wondering, well, what direction is that, Pastor John? What direction is the world always telling us to go? Well, look at the quote that James is quoting in verse 13. It reads as following. Today or tomorrow... We will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Here, James is quoting the fundamental message that the world is constantly preaching to us. And that message goes like this. Plan out your life. The fundamental message that this world is constantly preaching to you and I is that we are to plan out our lives. Now, when you realize this and you combine it with the negative tone that James has towards his quote in verse 14, you would be tempted to think that James is against the idea of planning out your life. And because James is found in the Bible, you might make the further assumption that the Bible is against you planning out your life. But if that is what you think, you cannot be more wrong. Because if you study scripture, you would see command after command that we are to live out a well-planned-out life, especially in the Old Testament wisdom books like the book of Proverbs. Let me give you a couple samplings, and you'll see what I mean. Listen to what it says. Proverbs 21, verse 5 says this. Good planning and hard work leads to prosperity, but a hasty shortcut leads to poverty. Proverbs chapter 6. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provision in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Proverbs 24, verse 27, do your planning and prepare your fields before building your house. And even later on in the gospel, Jesus himself, James' older brother, says that when it comes to following him, you better make sure that you have planned it out and thought it out very well. Luke chapter 14, this is Jesus talking. Whoever does not carry his own cross... And follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't sit down first and compute the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish the tower, all who see it will begin to make fun of him. They will say, this man began to build and was not able to finish. In the same way, therefore, not one of you can be my disciple if he does not renounce all of his possession. So clearly the Bible itself says to us over and over that if you want to be faithful to God, part of that faithfulness is exhibited in your ability of living out a well-planned out life. So with that in mind, we ask ourselves this question, well, if that is true, why is James so seemingly negative with this message of the world that tells us to live out a well-planned out life? Well, James tells us down in verse 16. Listen again to what he says there. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Apparently, according to James, there is a kind of planning that is not good, that is not biblical, because it leads you into becoming an arrogant, boastful person, which in the eyes of James is evil. Now, if that doesn't make sense to you, let me explain how he's getting to this conclusion. We live in a world that is filled with unlimited possibilities, right? Especially here in New York City. We live in a world, we live in a city that is filled with unlimited possibilities. Now, at first glance, you may think, wow, this is great. Unlimited possibilities. This is wonderful. I want to live in a realm. I want to have the opportunity of having unlimited possibilities, right? That's how we normally think. I want the cable service with unlimited channels and so forth. I want to live on that block with unlimited kinds of restaurants to eat at. We think that unlimited possibilities is a wonderful thing, but actuality, it is not. 
for two reasons. First reason is not all possibilities that are available to you are equally good. Some possibilities are better than other possibilities. Other possibilities are worse than other possibilities, okay? Not all possibilities that are available to you are equally good. And to top it all off, it gets worse because the second reason why having unlimited possibilities is not good is because you do not have unlimited time to pursue all the wonderful possibilities that you want to pursue in your life. Listen again to what James says in verse 14. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. What is James saying here? James is saying that in light of the big picture, your life is so insignificant. In light of the big picture, your life is just a blimp in the timeline of history. It's like a puff of smoke. It's here one moment and then gone forever. And practically what this means is that at some point, we all reach a certain age to where we don't have the health, the time, the resources to pursue the various possibilities that we always wished we could pursue. Which means, if you want to live a somewhat meaningful life, if you want to live a life that makes some difference, at some point you have to say yes to some things and no to other things. By the way, that's planning. If you want to know what it means to live out a planned out life, that basically means you say yes to certain things and no to other things. That is what planning is in a nutshell. It's learning how to say yes to the right things and saying no to the wrong things. Yes and no, which means one of the most important things that you need to learn is learning how to say yes and no correctly. In his book, Yes or No, social entrepreneur Jeff Schinnebarger puts it this way, quote, it's amazing how two words have the ability to change everything, yes or no. Most decisions ultimately come down to the moment when you choose to say yes or choose to say no. I believe that the words yes and no are the most powerful words in the dictionary. They define who we love, what we will be known for, and what we will do with our lives. These words can both open doors to new places and close doors to old spaces. Yes and no begins new stories and end all plot lines. They are definitive words, words that significantly change the trajectory of life. Yes or no determines the hours you will spend in a job. Yes or no makes a commitment to a lifelong relationship to a specific person. Yes or no shapes your character in times of stress. Yes or no commits you to buy and pay for a car and even a house. Most decisions come down to two small words that define everything. Those two words are yes and no. According to Schinnebarger, the thing that determines the kind of life that you live, which includes the person you marry, the kind of job that you have, the place that you live, the amount of money that you make is all determined by what you say yes to and what you say no to. Now, imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment that you were able to create a spectacular life based on what you said yes to and no to. Just imagine that because of your ability to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things, you were able to create a spectacular, wonderful life. How would you feel about yourself? How would you think of yourself, especially in life when you compare your life to other people and their life is not as good as yours? In other words, their yes and no led them to an inferior life to yours. In light of that comparison, how would you view yourself? How would you feel about yourself? How would you think of yourself? You know how you would think of yourself? You would think that you are the man. That you are the woman. You would see yourself 
as the sole person responsible for the abundant life you're living now to where you inevitably come to the conclusion that you are better than other people. And because you are better than other people, you cannot and you will not depend on other people because they are inferior to you. Evidenced by the fact that you have a better life and as a result, you think you don't need anyone. Maybe even God himself. You see, the reason why James is against the world's version of living out a well-planned out life is because its ultimate goal, its ultimate destination is to achieve a life of utter independence of other people and eventually of God himself. This is the direction the world tells us we should go with our lives. The world says, look, live out your life. Go in the direction of your life in such a way that you can be completely free, completely dependent to where you can determine the meaning and purpose of your life. Not your parents, not your friends, not your teachers, not even your God. That is the direction the world is telling us to go all the time. Be the self-made man. Be the self-made woman. But as we're about to see, James is going to show us that people who follow this direction of life in accordance to the world are not people that we should envy, not people we should follow and emulate or admire. In fact, quite the opposite. James is going to show us that people who follow the direction of the world are people to be pitied most of all. And to explain, let me go to my next point, the pathetic tragedy of those who follow the direction of the world. Let's go back again to that very sobering statement James makes in verse 14. He says this, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Here's a little interesting Bible trivia knowledge here. You see that word mist in verse 14? According to biblical scholars, That's the exact same word that the author of Ecclesiastes, a book in the Old Testament, uses to describe the word meaninglessness. If you ever read through the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the things that you see over and over, one of the phrases that you see over and over is the author saying that life is meaningless, meaningless. All of life is meaningless. Or if you have a King James Version, it's vanity, vanity. All of life is just vanity. That is the same word James is using. As he's writing these verses, he's saying that when something is vanity, that your life is a mist, he's saying that your life is meaningless. Now, why is that important to know? It's important to know because James is trying to tell us that if you follow the direction the world is telling you to go, you are to be a pitied person because your life ultimately will end up becoming a meaningless life. Let me explain. Go back to the quote in verse 13. What does it say? Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. What's the main method this person is using to try and live a life of independence? It's money, right? Making lots and lots of money. Profit. This person is vigorously planning and planning and planning out his life so he can make a profit because he believes the more profit you have, the more freedom you have, the more money you have, the more independent you can be and not be dependent on anyone, maybe even God himself. And indeed, we see this belief being lived out every day in real life. If you tallied up the various methods that people use to try and live a life of independence from God, hands down, making money would be the primary method that people use over and over. If you did a statistical analysis to measure the correlation between a person's faith in God to the amount of money they make, you see a pattern. The more money a person makes, the less they have faith in God, the less they trust God, the less they have dependence on God. This has actually been verified 
empirically. Now, with all that in mind, let me read to you Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 17. I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless! There it is. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill, then must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. Come back with me to that imagined scenario that I brought up in my first point. Imagine that because of your ability to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things, you have a spectacular life to where compared to other people, your life just blows their life out of the water. It's so much superior than theirs, okay? You have an amazing company that are the envy of your competitors. You have name recognition to where even obscure hidden tribes in South America even recognize your name. You have money that is coming out of you that you can go anywhere, be with anyone at any time because you just have that financial wealth. You think you are the most important person on the planet because you're so boastful. You're so arrogant. Now let's say in this imagined scenario, you're dead. And then let's say that your disembodied spirit is floating over your previous life and you look down and you see your previous vice presidents ruining the company that you worked so hard to achieve with your unique creativity. And not only that, as a result, your name is slowly being forgotten because a superior name of a superior company has come in in light of the failure of your previous employers. And then you see your snotty kids wasting your hard-earned money, the money that reflected how unique and powerful you were on frivolous things. Do you really think at that moment as you witness all this that you're going to feel as important as you did when you were living? Do you really think you're going to be boastful and arrogant and think you were the man, that you were the woman? Probably not. Not at all. This is why James is hinting to the book of Ecclesiastes when he uses this word missed in verse 14 because he wants to remind his readers of what happens to people when they follow the direction of the world. All this idea, all of this ambition that makes you think you are so amazing and so important turns out to be nothing more than a self-deluded lie. And as a result, you should be pitied above all people. This is the pathetic tragedy that is waiting everyone who goes off into the direction of the world. And the question that becomes to us now is, how do we avoid this? Is there a way of making sure that we live a meaningful life in light of the fact that we are nothing but a mist in such a way to where we don't end up like that rich fool that Scripture speaks of often? The answer leads me to my final point. The direction that God tells you to go and how to get there. Let's read again verse 15 of our passage. James says this, Instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Here James tells us the direction in life that we are to go. It is the direction that will avoid the tragedy of following the direction of the world. And he refers to it as the direction of the Lord's will. Or as some translation puts it, the will of God. 
Here's the question. What exactly is that talking about? What is James talking about? What is the will of God? What does that even mean? What is James specifically thinking when he says the will of God as the direction we are to follow? Well, I think we can get a good idea when we consider two things that James brings up in our passage. Specifically, the obsessive pursuit of profit or money. And secondly, this idea of a mist, something that's here one moment and then gone to the next. For all you Bible scholars in here, I know they're all, most of you, right? Where else do you see in the Bible this combination? The obsessive pursuit of money and the idea that something is here one moment and gone the other. You see it in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You see it in Matthew chapter 6. If you go to Matthew 6, verse 19, Jesus says this, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroys and where thieves break in and steal. Here is this idea of planning your life for profit. To store treasures up requires a lot of planning. If you skip down to verse 28 to verse 30 of chapter 6, Jesus goes on to say, And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the fields and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they were. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown in the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Here again, the idea of something that's here one moment today and gone the next moment, tomorrow. This is why, according to biblical scholars, they think that James, as he's writing these verses in chapter 4, is specifically thinking of his older brother's teaching in Matthew 6. James is specifically thinking of the Sermon on the Mount as he's writing these verses, which means if we want to know what James is actually saying when he says the will of God, chances are we'll find the answer of what he means by going back to Matthew 6. And sure enough, Jesus tells us what the will of God is. Matthew 6, verse 33 says this, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This is the direction that God wants all of us to go. God wants us to go in the direction towards his kingdom. Think about it. This is the complete opposite to the direction of the world. Because remember, what is the direction of the world? What is the ultimate destination? What is the goal? Complete independence from God. What is the direction of the kingdom of God? What do you do when you make it to the kingdom of God? Complete dependence on God. Where you are God's servant and God is your king. Right? And here's the thing you have to understand. The Bible tells us that when you submit to God as your king, you're not simply saying that you are his servant or his slave. You're also saying that you believe God loves you enough to where he is going to protect you and provide for you in ways that you can never protect and provide for yourself. And not only that, by submitting to God as your king, you are saying, God, as my king, I am on board with your agenda. For my life, for everyone's life, for this world. In other words, God, by you being my king, I am on board and I am loyal to and I am fully participatory in the mission of your kingdom. That is what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. That is what it means to follow the Lord's will. Here's the question. What is the mission of God? Anyone know what the mission of God is? The answer is right behind me. It's on that big, massive green banner. On my right side, or to your left side, excuse me. The mission of NCF, and therefore the mission of every church, is to what? Bless the world. To bless the world. Do you guys know what that statement, to bless the world, assumes? 
What does the statement bless the world assumes? It assumes that the world isn't blessed, which is another way of saying that the world is cursed right now. The world is full of brokenness and curses everywhere. And part of the reason why God commissions us to bless the world is because he commissions every one of us to make sure that we undo and push back and undermine the curses that are out there. That is what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. That is what it means to follow the direction of God's will. And what this practically means is every major plan you have for your life, every major plan, the underlying question that should inspire it is this. Does this plan that I am preparing undermine a curse that is out there in the world? So, for example, for those of you college students, if you're thinking, gee, wonder what major I should pursue. I wonder what I should do as my major as a student. It should not be answered with, well, what's going to give me the most amount of money? What's going to give me the most amount of prestige? What's going to give me the most amount of job security? No, the question, or excuse me, the the question you should be asking when you think about what major you should do is this. What major is going to best equip me to solve a specific problem that has been caused by the curse of sin? For those of you who are transitioning to a new job, the question you should not be asking is, hey, which job is going to help me realize my ambitious dream of being a self-made man? Which job is going to get me closer to the corner office? Which job is going to get me to that bigger apartment, that bigger screen TV? Which job is going to make my parents more proud of me and compare me to other kids, you know, that make me better than them? No. The question is, what job is going to position me in such a way to where I can use the gifts and talents God has given me so that I can push back against the curse of sin that is out there in the world? Here's another one. When you decide the kind of relationship you should pursue or not pursue, the question shouldn't be, hey, this person is really hot. This person is, gonna, is making a lot of money and will get me closer to that life that I wanted to have. Or this person, you know, is, is my emotional one and we connect well. And this is my destiny. She's the one. He's the one. Yes. No, the question should be, is this person going to help me grow to be more faithful to the kingdom? Is this person going to keep me accountable so that I stay focused on the kingdom? Is this person going to help me raise children in such a way that we will push back the curse of sin and bring hope and peace back into the world that God intended it to be. When you attempt to live out a well-planned out life as we are called to, the mission of God to bless the world should be the main purpose behind all of your plans. That should be the goal behind all of your major plans, whether it be towards work, towards marriage, towards recreation, towards personal development. But now we're left with the final question. How do we do that? How do we go in the direction of God's kingdom? Well, let's go back to Matthew 6.33. Listen again to what Jesus says. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Here Jesus tells us that the way you head in the direction of God's kingdom is exactly the same to which you receive his righteousness. How do you receive the righteousness of God? The answer is the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says God the Son came to the earth as Jesus, and he lived this life always going in the direction of his Father's kingdom. Why? Because he wanted to make sure that you get there. That's why. 
When Jesus followed the direction of his father's kingdom, it meant humiliation, it meant pain, it meant rejection, it meant torture, it meant humiliation, it meant death on the cross, it meant being abandoned by God the Father as he was dying on the cross. Why? So that you would never experience that when you follow the direction of God. You know, let's be honest. For some of us who've been going to church, we try to go in the direction of God and we struggle with major football, don't we? We think, if I go in the direction of God, I'm missing out. I don't want to miss out. I don't want to be, end up humiliated and regretting the life that I lived, I could have lived, by going all in for God. But Jesus shows us that every loss that you could have achieved, Jesus suffered for you so that you don't miss out on anything, but you get everything in him. Do you know why the world is as messed up as it is? Do you know why the world is as cursed as it is? It's because it's filled with people who are driven to go in the direction of the world. It is filled with people who think they're better than other people. It is filled with people who always have this underlying competitiveness, always measuring people up to see if you can control them and conquer them and dominate them, validating your own self-deluded proclaim of saying, I'm so important. That's why the world is so messed up, and that's why God calls us followers of Jesus to live completely the opposite way and bring some hope and bring some blessing to the world. And here's what's so amazing. If you hold and cling to this gospel hope that Jesus loves you and and he's for you, he's your Lord and Savior, he conquered sin and death for you on the cross, you avoid the tragedy of the direction of the world. Because what's the tragedy of the direction of the world? You are forgotten. If you are in Christ, that is, if you put your hope and your heart into God and his kingdom and his son Jesus, you're never forgotten. You know why? Because the one who would remember you, the one who is the most prominent, significant person in all the the universe, doesn't die. He's eternal. He never forgets you. And not only that, you don't die. Our vaporous living is only temporary because what comes after is eternal life. It is only in Jesus, it is only in the gospel that you avoid the tragedy of being forgotten. And so, here is my question to you, NCF. Do you realize the eternal king loves you this much with a forgiving love, with a transforming love, with an eternal love? If you do, you will not go in the direction of the world. For why would you want to go further and further away from this king who loves you this much? Instead, you will go right in his direction. And as a result, this world will be better. As a result, your marriages will be better. Your workplace will be better. Your neighborhood will be better. Your church will be better. The city will be better. All because you follow the direction of your king. 2016, six days from now, right? Five days from now. Six days from now. You're probably planning out your life. You're probably planning out 2016. What are your goals? What are your dreams? What are your ambitions? I want to challenge all of you. Get the kingdom of God on the agenda. Make it your highest priority. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you as well. Amen. Let's, let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for how you've been faithful to us this past year. Father, even though it has been filled with a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow, and a lot of tragedy, we also know that in the midst of it, you have displayed your faithfulness, your power, your mercy, and your love. And so, Father, we come to you now eager and ready to follow you again in this upcoming year. And God willing, every year that comes after. Follow, Father, we are surrounded by people who are going in the wrong directions of life. And they are wooing us and they are tempting us, maybe even threatening us to follow them. But, Lord, we want to follow the direction of our great king and master, the Lord Jesus. Would you help us to do that by giving us more confidence that, that comes from a deep awareness and meditation of the gospel. That is through obtaining your righteousness that we obtain the kingdom. Oh God, help us to avoid the tragedy that the author of Ecclesiastes spoke of, of a meaningless life. Father, we don't want to waste 20, 30, 40 years only to come at the very end of it to realize that we were so wrong. Spare us of such folly. And free us from the deception and the lies of this world so that we can live with much freedom and that we can live with true blessings to this world. Help us to do that now, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to give the Lord his tithes and our offerings. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But to our members, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.